unique yet common sense opinions on sports. This is Jeff Allen Sports Talk. And coming up on this week's show, pleasure to welcome back WKMG News 6 Sports Director Jamie Say. We'll talk about her Buffalo Bills, the Super Bowl, Daytona 500, March Madness, and some UCF as well. Jamie is standing by in the virtual green room, and she will join us in just a moment. A little post-mortem on my uh, college basketball broadcaster breakdown from last week with Adam Eaton and Eric Lopez. I was a little dismissive of Fox Sports, saying that, you know, I don't think of them when it comes to college basketball coverage, and I would say it's probably, you know, ESPN, CBS, and it's not that I don't watch Fox at all for sports, but I haven't, I don't gravitate to them immediately for college hoops. I'm starting to do that more for college football because they've done a great job of showcasing the Big Ten. Um, and their college basketball, you know, they got some great guys doing that. Obviously, Gus Johnson is tremendous. Bill Raftery does work for them as well. My One of my all-time favorites, Timmy Brando, uh, Donnie, Donnie Marshall, or Danielle Marshall from back in the day, is excellent on analysis. So uh, you know, probably could have dug, dug a little deeper, but uh, we were getting pretty long in the tooth <laughs> as far as the time on the podcast. So, you know, I don't like to... You know, I most of you know I like the 45-minute, sometimes up to an hour window. Occasionally, we'll skirt past that, if uh, particularly if the uh, the topic in the conversation is vibrant and warranted, as it was in last week's case with uh, Adam and Eric, as they helped me with this uh, broadcaster breakdown series. And we'll continue that as well. We'll do some NBA. We'll do some Major League Baseball. Um, Adam had a couple ideas for some good uh, theme shows like Best Sports Center Anchors of All Time. That's an intriguing one. Um, so we'll get to some of those too, as uh, those two guys helped me out with that particular series. Dak Prescott is getting paid. So the Dallas Cowboys will avoid a second year of him being on the franchise tag. $160 million, 126 of that guaranteed. Not too shabby. And for those detractors of Dak Prescott saying, wow, he's he's not worth that kind of money, who is? You know, Patrick Mahomes is still the top-paid quarterback. Prescott now number two, uh, ahead of uh, Russell Wilson and Deshaun Watson. But you look around the league, how many teams wouldn't trade to get a quarterback like Dak Prescott? given their current quarterback situation. I'd say it's a pretty good that number runs in double digits. So uh, Cowboys get him locked up. And now they just need to find some defense. NBA All-Star Game. <sighs> I didn't watch it. Uh, you know, these All-Star Games have just turned into, you know, if they're not going to play any defense, why bother? You know, I don't want them, you know, playing bone-crushing defense where people get hurt. But come on, you could do a little something, you know. All-Star Games practice social distancing before COVID. And really, the baseball All-Star Games is the only one you can really play defense in because you're not, you know, playing man-to-man, so to speak. So, uh not giving you a lot of commentary on the NBA All-Star Game because other than just bringing it up and why it doesn't work, that's pretty much all I got to say on that. And this week, the 50th anniversary of the first Muhammad Ali-Joe Frazier fight. It was billed as the fight of the century. It was 26-0 Joe Frazier taking on 
Heavyweight champion Muhammad Ali, who was 31-0. 1971, Madison Square Garden in New York City. And most people arguably say that's the biggest boxing match in history. And one of the most anticipated and hyped sporting events ever. And it was the first time that two undefeated boxers had fought for the heavyweight title. And it certainly was a tremendous bout. Frazier winning in 15 rounds via unanimous decision. And that, of course, made it a trilogy because it was followed by Super Fight 2 in 74 and the Thriller in Manila in 1975, both won by Muhammad Ali. And you think about boxing heavyweight division back in that day, you know, George Foreman, Kenny Norton, Jerry Quarry, a bit of a punching bag, but was not an easy fight for anybody. Uh, those fights back in the day were just absolutely fantastic. And what also I remember Joe Frazier for, and fondly, I might add, is this little ditty right here. When you order a beer, do like smoking Joe. Order live beer from Miller and say no more. It's got the third less calories than the regular beer. Life tastes great, y'all for listen here. It's not the thing that makes me shout. Life's less feeling, hey, that really knocks me out. Like beer from Miller. Everything you always wanted in a beer and less. Yeah, so those light beer commercials were, you know, back in that time, the athlete celebrity endorsements of them doing the commercials was fantastic. It's helped what elevate John Madden, Bob Euchre with his shtick. And uh, that was one of my favorite ones with uh, Smoke Joe Frazier singing in the one part in the commercial there where he uh, finishes the song. And it's quiet, and he turns around with that grimacing look, and he starts to cheer. That is fantastic. It is my pleasure to welcome back to the program WKMG News 6 Sports anchor, Jamie Say. Jamie, it is great to have you back on the show once again. Well, thank you so much for having me back, Jeff. I always love to talk to you about yes. sports. <laughs> yes, indeed. And, uh, you know, last time we talked, it was at the uh, the beginning of the football season. And, um, and, of course, knowing that you're a Buffalo Bills fan, I have to say you had a lot of great pride in which team that did this year, getting to the championship game in the AFC on the doorstep of the Super Bowl. You, you called the shot that they were going to, you know, supplant the Patriots this year. <laughs> did. So, uh, you know, tell me about uh, that experience as a Bills fan. It's been a long time. Yeah, it has. Thank you for remembering my prediction, by the way. Um, just unbelievable. I mean, it's it's been a long time. It's been a long time. But one thing Buffalo Bills fans are, well, there's, we're actually a number of things, but patience, <laughs> we have a lot of patience and we stick by our team. Um, no matter where we are, um, we always stick by the Buffalo Bills. We also are very self-deprecating and we go in with a hope for the best, expect the worst kind of attitude. But um, it's been a long time, you know, I mean, what, 1995, I think was their last playoff victory. And it had been so long, but um, the last few seasons with Josh Allen have been amazing. And then uh, 
it was so much fun. It was so much fun watching them win games and the way they won this year with their offense and an undersized defense that I felt overachieved. I mean, they have some great personnel, but they're not big guys. Their linebacking core, uh, besides Tremaine Edmonds, is, is fairly small. I mean, Matt Milano, who went to Dr. Phillips and he's Orlando guy, he, he's not a very big guy, but they were effective and it was wonderful. And now hopefully they can take another step and maybe get to the big game sometime in the coming years. But the Chiefs are pretty good and it's going to take a lot to unseat Kansas City for a while. But I, I really like the progress, love the coaching staff. And Gabe Davis was awesome in his rookie year. Yeah, I'll get to Gabe in a second, but uh, I do yeah. want to ask you, you know, the, about the growth of Josh Allen. I mean, this is a guy that certainly has all the yeah. raw talent, but uh, you know, talk about the steps he made this season. You know, usually that third year is usually an important year for a player. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, they always stress third year, third year, and it's almost like it. And I feel like it's unfair that they call it kind of the make or break year. If you're not ready, if you're not, if you don't take that step in your third year, are you done? Are you going to lose your starting job? Um, are you going to become, you know, a journeyman and, and stuff? But um, Josh Allen's accuracy, he always had the arm strength. And actually in that draft, he was the quarterback I did want. So I was thrilled when the bills took him Um you know, I, I felt like it was, you know, it was between him and Josh Rosen at that position. And I was so excited about getting Josh Allen because in the combine, all you heard about was his big arm. And it's just like, it's something Buffalo hadn't had in a long time, a guy with big arm. And uh, just his accuracy was great. I mean, last year he was, he was good, but he almost tried to, you know, he did a lot this year, but it, it felt like um, under duress, he made poor decisions. I think he really improved his decision-making, knew that he had to do a lot to help the team win, but had a lot more composure and didn't rely on his natural ability to try and bail them out like he did last year, which led to mistakes. This year, I just think his knowledge of defenses and – just, you know, when to tuck it and run, when to take the loss, when to throw it away, that vastly improved. And then his accuracy was great. I mean, despite the pandemic, I know he worked out with a lot of receivers during the off season out in California, Gabe being one of them. And, uh, you know, it showed. So, I mean, if this is just scratching the surface, you know, we'll see what happens. But, yeah, I mean, he took a major leap. Yeah, and – you pick the right Josh. <laughs> the end of the day. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, it was it was such a it was such a quarterback deep draft and everything like that. And you know, he was the one that I wanted. You know, out of all the guys, I was like, I want I want Josh Allen because we heard about his big arm at the combine, and it was exciting. Yeah, and of course now I'm talking about Gabe Davis. I mean, when you look at the Bills receiving core with with Diggs and Brown and Beasley, McKenzie, I mean, one you could argue the Bills had the best wide receiver group in the league, and two, the fact that Gabe Davis had such big contributions in his rookie season speaks a lot of, of, about the volume of his talent. Yeah, I you know I uh, Jeff you know I think anybody in Orlando knew that. Gabe had it in him but how would that translate in his rookie year you know it's such a big step going up against professional defensive backs but you know 
we saw how Gabe prepared himself at UCF and his desire to take his game to the next level, especially heading into the junior year. I mean, um, Gabe was the guy at UCF that would catch a hundred extra balls out of the jugs machine after every single practice. He's the one who, you know, added weight, added muscle. Um, I mean, his body doesn't look like a rookie. Really? He really doesn't. And, you know, he's not someone who's going to beat you with blazing speed, but the one thing that I think he has, well, he's got a couple of things. I mean, he does have good leaving ability. He's got great hands, but he's got toughness. You know, he makes those tough catches and he can out tough guys. And it was awesome seeing Gabe, but I, I kind of thought that, all right, he could be, he could be that special guy. And, you know, even though he comes from Florida, he's the type of receiver that I, I think could be one of the all time greats in Buffalo if if he stays around just because I just his blue collar work ethic is a perfect fit there yeah and those two sideline catches he made in the playoffs were amazing. (laughs) oh yeah and they were completely needed right I mean like he had an amazing game against the Colts because that one that one was too close for comfort I mean he was fantastic it was he was fantastic and I know he's nicked up a little bit too towards the end of the season um and and you know injuries are always a factor but yeah I think he'll have a big year I mean because John Brown went out and and he played a significant role in John Brown's absence and you know the Bills just saw a little taste of what he can deliver, but I can't imagine, you know, sky's the limit for him. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, once the season culminated in Tampa with the Super Bowl and uh, did it was a little bit of a torture having to cover Tom Brady. <laughs> you know, what's funny. It's like, as soon as he got out of new England, I'm like, okay, I can root for him now because, you know, it, I want the Florida teams to do well, except when the, when say the dolphins are playing the bills just selfishly for story wise for what i do i want the florida teams to do well so as soon as brady signed with the bucks you know i have no allegiance to anybody in the nfc i'm like this is great this is great for the state of florida this makes uh the buccaneers the most intriguing team in all of the nfl and uh yeah i did root for brady i mean just like him, I'm 40-something. I'm in my mid-40s. And, you know, just to see what he does and how he looks about 35, uh, 34 years old and stuff, it, w- it was great. And, uh, you know, it's amazing what one player, what kind of impact one player can have on a team. And I think he showed it. I mean, the Buccaneers have so much talent. But to have a leader like that who lays out the expectations, who's done it for 20 years – and continues to put everything he's got into his craft and be that leader and maintain composure in the big situations. I mean, you know, he turned a hard luck franchise into a Super Bowl champion in one season, in one season where they really weren't together. You know, they didn't Mm. have a training camp and it it was phenomenal. I mean, it's one of the best stories I think in, in pro football, you know i mean just the story of tom brady in itself is amazing but just what he did in tampa is like something that'll never be forgotten so are you on the tb12 plane because you look like you're in your 30s oh thank you no i i like to eat uh junk food and sugar and regular ice cream not avocado ice cream i am a regular ice cream ben and jerry's kind of girl so but thank you jeff you're quite welcome so 
Talk about covering the Super Bowl. The obviously, it was a different scenario altogether, yeah. all the COVID protocols. Uh, can you share that experience with us? Sure. Yeah, it was, it was a lot different. Um, so, so we attend, we were in Tampa for the Super Bowl. Um, I've covered two other Super Bowls previous to this. Um, the one in New Orleans between the Ravens and the 49ers, and then the one in Atlanta between the Rams and the Patriots. And generally, you go to the site for the week. Um, there's in-person media availability, like little press stations set up everywhere, basically every day. Um, with personnel, with players from each team. It's in person. You go, it's early in the morning, you get that. And there's there's time for one-on-one interviews and stuff like that. And then come game day, um, you know, and, and it's basically a festival for that entire week in that Super Bowl city. I mean, it's just a big celebration. There's There are people everywhere. You see jerseys everywhere. It's crazy. And then the day of the game, you know, I'm allowed into the stadium and typically I'm in auxiliary press box seating. And that means I have a seat in the stadium. So I'm amongst the fans and it's awesome. You get to watch the Super Bowl from the stands while you're working. Um, But this year was completely different. Everything was over Zoom uh, during the week of, and it was managed well. You know, the NFL really organized it well. We got the the content we needed, it was more difficult to come up with unique stories because everybody's getting the same stuff. But then the day of the game, um, you know, they really limited the number of people in the stadium, including the media. So um, there was no auxiliary press box. There was a media center, which was a tent outside the stadium, um, basically for the extra press. And then, I mean, really where I watched the game was, um, we where our live location was it's called the domestic compound and that's where like all the satellite trucks are parked and then you have a great backdrop of the stadium for your live shots so we parked our satellite truck in there and set up a television watched the game in there took notes and kind of had a little bit of a tailgate kind of just because you know we're, we're, we're taking in the game and we've got to work and and so that's how it was it was very different i mean everything was very different um Tampa, we stayed over in Tampa Friday, Saturday, Sunday night, and there was certainly a party atmosphere in downtown, but the vibe definitely was different than a typical Super Bowl year in the city. I mean, I mean, just imagine the city would have been going crazy if there was no pandemic um, with the with the Buccaneers in there. Everybody would have been trying to get tickets. This wasn't this wasn't like that. So so it was different. We were able to do the job, but hopefully, you know, it'll go back to normal and be very safe next year. But it's, you know, it's just like, you know, it's the one year. It's the one year that the host city has the Super Bowl champion and, and it's a somewhat uh, not subdued, but limited. A diminished experience. So, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. But it was, yeah. it was great to be there, though. It was great to be there and covering it. Yeah. So. And then, of course, you know, not long after that, you cover, you know, the Daytona 500. And, yeah. uh, you know, were you, were you into NASCAR at all before you lived in the South? Uh, well, a little bit. Um, I mean, I, I grew up in upstate New York, in Albany, New York, which is on the eastern side of, of the state. It's a big state, but it's upstate. Now, I didn't follow a lot of NASCAR growing up, um, but I knew who Dale Earnhardt was. And I thought, 
you know, just like everybody else that did, you know, he was the famous name and pardon my French, but he was a badass. And it's just like, <laughs> how can you not get on, on board with that? My first market though, I worked in Watertown, New York, which is um, more central Western New York. And there is a huge contingent of NASCAR fans out there and also small uh, track racing. Um, so I would cover dirt racing and small pavement racing. Um, so that's when I got a little bit more into NASCAR. It's somewhat close to Watkins Glen. Um, but there were so many fans that you just kind of immersed yourself in that culture. So I liked it, but I had never covered anything like the Daytona 500. And I remember my first 500 and just being awed by it. It's like, wow, I'm I'm here at the Daytona 500. We're getting ready for the Daytona 500, you know, an event that I had heard about since I was little. And, um, you know, each time I cover it, it's like, I'm here at the Daytona 500. All <laughs> eyes, you know, so many eyes are watching it. So I have a real big appreciation for it. And I enjoy the races. I, I don't have a rooting interest. You know, there are drivers that I like, but I don't have a rooting interest, but I really, really like the stock car racing and, and the big, and the big NASCAR races. And, and the drivers are, you know, what they do is incredible. I mean, and it, it certainly has changed, but, but what they are, what they risk to put on the show and to go for the win. And they're, you know, some of the most competitive individuals I've ever covered it, it's awesome yeah. so it was fun yeah well you know with the uh, nascar you know in the early 2000s they were starting to kind of hit the mainstream a little bit yes but then you know it's kind of uh, wavered back a little bit and yeah what do you attribute that to you know i think I, I i think what it is it's like you had like right around 2000 you had so many personalities i mean the push of dale earnhardt and then, you know, his rivalry with Jeff Gordon. And Jeff Gordon is a guy, the California kid. He's the one who I think really pushed it into the mainstream. You know, he hosted Saturday Night Live in the 90s. And that was like the first big thing. And we saw like these festival atmospheres at these NASCAR races. I mean, you know, they were always selling out. Um, and then some of those personalities and those rivalries and the storylines went away. Um, you know, I think Dale Earnhardt's passing took a major personality out of the game um, and a famous name. And then uh, it just, you know, it, it just changed a little bit. I think um, there's been more turnover in drivers, um, you know, and their personalities aren't as you know Dale Earnhardt was from what I've heard off the track was somewhat of a sweetheart of a man but on track you know he'd wipe his his mom out to get the win <laughs> you know I don't know you know and Tony Stewart had one of those personalities and and um and then Junior was the guy they always rooted for but then you have a guy like Jimmy Johnson who dominated and won seven seven cups it's like those rivalries kind of went away and then um it felt like the rivalries went away um you know you've got a guy who's brash like kyle bush but nobody's really going up against him or anything like that like those storylines seem to be gone um it, you know drivers have a tendency to come and go a little bit more there's new rule changes you know um with the stage racing and the NASCAR's tinkered with so many different rule changes in the last 20 years. 
Um, Maybe they're getting it in their own way, right? <laughs> yeah, it, it could be. It's not, they're not just, you know, firing. I, I like the stage racing because it does make it competitive in those, those last couple of laps, like at, you know, like lap 60 of the Daytona 500, you know, by when you get to lap 58, it's like, okay, here's some aggression and stuff like that. Um, so I don't know. And I think um, the TV contracts have been really good for them uh, monetarily, but you know, when they signed the big TV deal with NBC, you know, some of the races were on the main network, but a lot were pushed to NBCSN, which before we all became cable savvy, it was, it wasn't, as easy to find, you know, you had to search for NBCSN because it was kind of up and coming and stuff like that. I don't think that helped, um, you know, and then, and then the races are long, you know, I think we as Americans have a shorter span of attention, you know, races take four hours, three and a half, four hours. Um, and also the recession has stuff to do with it too. Like, I think it's a whole bunch of things. And then, you know, a new generation, um, how they have different viewing habits and where they get their entertainment from. So I think it's a whole bunch of things. Yeah. Where, but, where do you, where yeah. do you stand on the uh, green, white checker finish, especially in these uh, super speedway races? Because to me, it's inevitable that we see the same type of finish every time. Uh, yeah. That plays a part too. Yeah, I, I think so. I think it takes some of, some of the excitement out of it too. Um, you know, I, I'm not, you know, I, I want to see them duel to the very end, you know, um, the overtime rules are interesting. I mean, it's fun, but it's like, okay, here we go again. Here we mm. go again. Um, and, and the rules are confusing, but. Yeah, yeah. Two laps in a wreck, two laps in a wreck. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I know. Like you get that at Daytona a lot, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but you know, but I still have fun. I mean, I, I still enjoy the races. Um, you know, this year's 500. If you watched it, I, I thought it was a little dull to be honest mm -hmm. with you. I mean, they had like a gosh, a five or six hour rain delay and then they start up and it felt like they just wanted to get it done mm -hmm. you know so there was not a lot of action until that last lap like that was it and um so it was a little disappointing you know sometimes the weather is not on their side either and sometimes you know where they position the race you know where where tv wants to air it you know now that the 500 is at like three o'clock, three fifteen, instead of you know one o'clock or something like that you know when I don't know. I, I think they've tinkered with a lot of things and sometimes it's good just to keep it the same. Yeah. Well, of course it was uh, about a year ago uh, this week that the sports world came to a sudden halt yeah. um, and knocked out one of my favorite events. Of, of course, I'm a big March Madness guy. Uh, yeah. Live for that every year. And it, boy, it was a long month without it. Yeah. And we get it back this year. They're doing a quasi bubble in Indianapolis. Yeah. Um, how do you, how do you think that's going to play out? It's going to be interesting. It, it, it really is, you know, I, I, like part of what's awesome about March Madness is the atmospheres and, you know, the reaction of the fans and the building and everything like that. It'll be interesting to have all the teams in there. It'll be interesting to see how the COVID protocols keep everybody um, COVID negative. You know, because, I mean, Jeff, you've seen it throughout this college basketball season. I mean, games are getting postponed all the time, um, you know, and, and it just happens. So I just wonder, how are all these teams that are coming here, going there, how are they going to maintain negative testing? You know, is there going to be a situation where a team has to pull out and they bring somebody in? You know, that's what I'm really curious about. And also, like, you're not going to see, what, Duke? 
<laughs> I mean, you maybe know, not Kentucky. <laughs> you know, right? Like, you're not going to see these powerhouses. So it's just, it's crazy how, you know, even after a year, the pandemic still has had such a major impact on, on the season and this coming um, tournament. I mean, not just for the protocols, but just the impact that it's had on these basketball teams. And, um, you know, Duke hasn't played well this year. Kentucky hasn't been Kentucky. Carolina's been better lately, but, you know, they certainly struggled. So some of these favorites, I mean, it'll be interesting. But I think all it takes is a Cinderella. You know, all it takes is a Cinderella to make the March tournament. And hopefully we got a Loyola Chicago in there. I lo- they're going to make it, but hopefully we've got a, the next one coming yeah, up. You, which you know, kind of brings me to my next point because you know, unlike the college football playoff, teams do legitimately have a path. I mean, you yeah. mentioned Loyola Chicago, Butler played for the national championship. Yeah, and Zaga has managed to build a powerhouse out yeah. of Cinderella a long time ago. Yeah, uh, you know th- that to me is such the beauty of the tournament. Absolutely. Definitely. I mean, yeah. I mean, like George Mason, you know, I mean, just all, all of these teams, because you never know what can happen because it's one game and you have to play really well. You have to play really well. Like you can't, you can't second guess your opponent just because they're a mid-major. Um, when uh, I worked in Syracuse, I was there um, at the game. I think it was, it might've been the 2006 tournament or 2005. I don't remember which one it was, but Syracuse was like a two seed or a three seed. And they played Vermont in the first round in Worcester, Massachusetts. And Vermont came out and stunned them. And it was huge. It was awesome. I mean, it was, it was just such a monumental win, but it's because Vermont came out with a senior laden team. And, you know, if you get a good mid-major team that's playing well at the right time and they play together and you, you get another team that maybe doesn't take its first round opponent seriously, you get upsets. And that's – and it is special. Like, I think it's great what Gonzaga is doing. Um, I think it's great that Butler became, you know, a talked-about team. Creighton, you know, Creighton made its mark um, – in the NCAA tournament too. Florida Gulf Coast got to the second weekend, you know. I know, yeah, yeah. And now Andy Enfeld's got has finally gotten, you know, USC like where it can legitimately do some damage. I don't know much about the Pac-12 this year. I I really don't know much about any of these teams, like which ones are going to show up and which ones aren't. But I, you know, I like if I I put my money on on Gonzaga, you know, I bet Virginia does well. I like I like Michigan. I'm going to root for Jawan Howard's team for yeah, sure. Yeah. And Syracuse is Syracuse's typical bubble team. They're always on the bubble now. So yeah, I would like to see Gonzaga win just to finally conquer that mountain because yeah. they've been there so close and they've been such a great program. It would yeah. be kind of neat to see uh, Mark you get that uh, get that Definitely. accomplished. Definitely, yeah. No doubt about it. Well, the big news in the offseason in college football was local. Uh, yes. With, uh, with uh, the UCF Knights and uh, not only having an athletic director lead, but he takes the head coach with him. So give me your thoughts from then. And now that you've had some hindsight to think about it, your thoughts yeah. now. Okay. So when Danny White left, I was like, oh, wow, what a blow. What a blow for the program, just because Danny was UCF's biggest cheerleader. Um, you know, I felt like he was the best athletic director that they had had since I've been here in my 10 years, my 10 years plus. Um, the things that he was able to do, the funds he was 
able to raise. He, he got things built, and he built this excitement. I mean, he took a uh, an, a winless football team and made the right hires and garnered the right enthusiasm around this um, to make the bounce house one of the best places to watch a college football game, one of the most fun places, you know, one of the most exciting interactive places during normal times. Um, and he was great for all the programs too. You know, I thought his hiring of coaches was phenomenal from Johnny Dawkins um, to Katie Abrahamson Henderson with the women's basketball program. Um, you know, he's uh, the, the women's soccer program's doing great. So I thought that was a major blow. I didn't see the hypo hire to Tennessee coming because I just didn't think, Hypo's star was as high as it needed to be, but then it made sense. It's just like, okay, Danny White needs to hire a coach very quickly. Um, sounds like Tony Elliott from Clemson's not going over there. So, all right, let's inject some Hypo offense into Tennessee and let's get our guys so we can recruit and, and do this stuff. So then it was just like, okay, I think UCF made a great hire in Terry Mahajer. You know, you talk about Danny White's enthusiasm. Well, Mahajers is off the charts. I met him for the first time last week on campus. I wasn't able to attend his, his introductory press conference, but I ran into him on campus. Um, and boom, I mean, just his excitement is just contagious and super friendly guy. And what does he do? He goes out and hires Gus Malzahn. I, I mean, that's, that's incredible. You know, a, a guy who was, what, the offensive coordinator for the national championship team, a guy who's beaten Alabama a couple of times, a guy who got Auburn to the national championship game, um, a CEO, really, for a football program, you know, an established guy. Like, you know, I, I mean, we'll see what he does with UCF, but I think you can feel it. I mean, uh, he believes in – the UCF brand and he's going to elevate it. You know, he's a Gus Malzahn and Terry Mahajer are two men that can really elevate the UCF brand. I love, I really like meeting Terry Mahajer. He's, he seems great. Yeah. So. You, you see the TikTok videos and, 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 <laughs> and, and, and you know, doing pushups uh, yeah. when the team scores when he was at Arkansas state and, you know, and that was a program that beat UCF in the cure bowl, you know? Yes. Yeah. Well, that's actually, that's actually, that's the first time I met Terry Mahajer was, was prior to the cure bowl because, um, you know, I do a lot with the cure bowl and I'm good friends with Alan Gooch, who's the executive director of the bowl. So he had introduced me to Terry um, during, you know, one of the opening press conferences and stuff. And it's just like, you know, if he can, if he can make the right hires at Arkansas State and turn that program into a successful group of five program, I mean, I think UCF fans are going to love Terry because he's going to be on the sidelines cheering right around with him. Like, I think he understands this is a college campus. Let's get the students just as pumped up or more as they were, you know, during that 2017 and 2018 run. I mean, it's going to be a fun, fun place for a long time. Um, you know, once we get back to normal, we can get more fans in there. Yeah, remind me, who did the play-by-play of the Cure Bowl? <laughs> oh, I did. I did. Yeah, on the radio. Um, yeah, yeah. So I've been involved in the Cure Bowl for a few years now. The last two years, I've done the radio play-by-play, which has been a blast. But um, I love being involved in it. I, you know, I love its mission. Um, and, uh, you know, I wor love working for Alan Gooch, who's, 
UCF through and through. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And you do a great job uh, calling the games, by the way. Um, So getting to Gus Malzahn now, I will admit I was a little lukewarm on that initially just because I was thinking, you know, we need the next up and comer, which, you know, we have gone through two of those now. Um, But I will say, you know, he won the press conference. Yes. And, you know, and, and, you know, no, yeah. Okay. No coach is going to come and say, you, you know, we really want to be average and, and, and not move the ball or anything like that. But you could just see something in him that you kind of felt, okay, I'm not here just to find my next power five job. Yeah. Like, well, you know, the, the, the man spent over a decade coaching high school football. You know, I think he's somebody who just loves coaching. Um, it, you know, and, you know, he's, he's a guy who probably, you know, obviously Auburn's a great job. He would have stayed there for, for as long as possible. Um, I think Auburn he really has a history of getting rid of their coaches, though. <laughs> yeah, I think he's really sincere in saying, you know, I want to build it. You know, mm-hmm. I, I want to build it. Um, you know, he's not at that. He got a great buyout at Auburn. He's not hurting for money. I mean, maybe he's at that point in his life that if he gets into that good situation, maybe he will settle in and not look for that next step. Um, you know, like, cause I understand the up and comer, but does UCF want to be that program that, you know, continues to win, but then you go through the worry of, well, what if the next guy's not the right guy, mm-hmm. you know, and then how long do you stick with that guy? Who's not the right guy. You know, because did Florida State stick with Willie Tag? Was three years too long for Willie Tagger? I mean, you know, you don't want to. So, like, that's why I thought it was great with Malzahn because you know they haven't had a CEO since George O'Leary, but you know Malzahn's got a different opinion on offense, one that I think meshes better with the athletes that you can bring into UCF. You know, Scott Frost is the one who really showed what you can do with the speed around here in the state of Florida. And just because they're not four stars doesn't mean they can't win big. Mm. You know, he got two stars and look what they did, Mm -hmm. you know? So, um, but then Gus comes and, you know, brings a couple of our Tigers with him, like what, three, four star guys, you know, established players who want to play for Gus Malzahn. And I think that says something too. They want to play for him. So, he seems like a player's coach too. Yeah, based on you know who he's hired for his staff and getting some of his transfers, we will now know how Auburn will do in the American. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. I'm really interested in seeing these um, assistant coaches too because they've got they're high energy guys. I can't wait to see how they recruit. I think one of the in, most interesting hires is Tim Harris. Um, you know, uh, as like co offensive. Re- coordinator I wonder how he's going to do recruiting because he used to be the coach at Booker T Washington great program in South Florida I'm sure he's got ties down there you know I'm really interested to see how they do recruit Florida because I thought Hypo got away from that I thought Frost did a phenomenal job recruiting Florida and especially Central and getting getting players in this state excited about it then I thought it went away you know Hypo had like five five Florida recruits in his class this year for UCF. That's not enough. Yeah. yeah especially in this state. Yeah. Yeah. I'm looking forward to seeing what Malzahn and his staff can do to the state of Florida. 
Well, speaking of Gus Malzahn, uh, I believe you have a, a, a nice uh, sit-down interview uh, to tell us about. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was yeah, it was great. It, um, on Thursday, last Thursday, um, went over to campus and I had uh, between twenty and twenty-five minutes with him. Um, you know, just kind of, and his excitement that he showed in the press conference has not waned. So, you know, we talk about building momentum. You know, for the program, we talk about. Uh, you know, his goals, obviously, for spring ball, talk about his opinion on on the players that he's the current players that he's met at UCF, the leadership that's here in terms of on that team. Uh, you know, his his coaching staff, I ask him about the Peach Bowl and all that stuff. I mean, he was great. He was great um, in depth and just a little bit more about him, you know, his life, his core values, stuff like that. So, yeah, and, and he, I can tell you, he wants to bring Orlando along. You know, he understands that it's going to take the entire Central Florida committee to, community rather, to build the brand that he wants for UCF. And, you know, it's something that was started by Danny White and Scott Frost, and, you know, he just wants to continue it. And, you know, and, and make it like, you know, in the state of Alabama, it's either Alabama or, or Auburn. Well, you know, I mean, I think he, he really wants to grab hold of the fan base here, you know, the alumni base. And you got to love the billboard campaign, right? Oh, yeah, it's perfect. You know, <laughs> like, that's the thing that I love about UCF. That, that brashness kind of went away after a little bit. Boom. Now they're sticking billboards up again. It's great. You know, they're, yes. they're seizing the moment. Yeah. Yes, I'm glad, I'm glad you said that because I know, um, you know, people used to give UCF a lot of grief for, you know, maybe sounding entitled, you know, during the national championship run and things like that. But I've always maintained if you want to be big time, you got to act big time. Yeah, absolutely. Like, yeah. Why be a wallflower? You know, I mean, and they had the record to back it up, you know, I mean, this is a special place. I mean, UCF is a special place. It's completely unique. Um, you know, just the campus is unique. It's alumni base, it's student body, everything is unique. It's young, it's fresh. I mean, it can be molded in any way possible. Why can't, you know, the football team should be that way too. I mean, I give a lot of credit to Scott Frost to keep doing it, but he's the one that reached out to the alumni and, and had them be part of the program and what they're doing. He's the one that changed the uniforms and made them exciting, taking a piece of Oregon, you know, that Oregon philosophy, putting it into UCF. Let's have fun. It's football. It's about the kids. I mean, you know, and that's what I think you can do at a place like UCF that maybe you can't do in the SEC. And of course, if uh, folks want to hear more from Gus Malzahn, yes. they got to tune in. To After the Whistle. So, yeah. So, I mean, we had about 20 to 25 minutes with him. He was great. Um, I'll be airing some of the interviews, small portions, um, during our weekly newscast at 6 and 11 on Channel 6. But um, it'll air pretty much in its entirety this Saturday night at 11.35 on News 6. The show is called After the Whistle, and we're just making it about UCF and, and Gus's comments. Um, yeah. And I think, I think fans will like what they hear. Yes, and if you can't watch it live, make sure you put the DVR. And, yes, and, DVR. We'll try and get that thing online, too. Yes, and, you <laughs> so, know, and I'm glad you get to do some long-form programming because, yeah. uh, uh, you know, it's great that you get to you know, expand upon and, and do a little bit more than what you get to do in the daily newscast. And I don't want to get you in trouble with your coworkers, but, uh, okay. if, but if we can get Tom Searles down to a three-day forecast and give you a couple <laughs> more minutes. 
Yeah, I, I think that. sports needs a little bit more time, <laughs> especially like, I mean, we've been so busy um, since last July, really, since the NBA started back up. I mean, it's just been, you know, it was so quiet in April and May as everybody's kind of waiting to see what would start up again. And then all of a sudden, July just everything kind of caught fire and we've been so busy. We're about to calm down a little bit, but I, I'm excited that spring football is starting and that UCF's going to have a spring game. Um, so yeah, there's a lot to talk about, a lot to get excited about. Um, you know, the NFL drafts coming up. What's, you know, the Jags hired Urban Meyer. The Dolphins could be pretty good next year. I mean, the Brady's Masters back. is coming up. Yeah. The Masters is coming up. We just had the Arnold Palmer Invitational, which was a lot of fun. Like, it was a weekend. I mean, I was there all day Sunday. It was great. Saturday was amazing, though. Some of the golf shots that were hit and everything like that. I mean, you know, I uh, to me, I – I think Central Florida is like the best kept secret in terms of the national sports landscape. It's got yeah. just the right amount, um, you know, and, it, and it's always fun. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Jamie, as always, we appreciate you coming on. And, you, uh, and uh, again, we look forward to uh, doing it again down the road. And, uh, of course, we encourage everybody to uh, check out After the Whistle. And yes. your uh, special with Gus Malzahn uh, coming yeah. up on Saturday. Jeff, thank you so much for having me. I always love talking sports with you. Appreciate it. And we'll be right back to close out with our TV theme right after this. No Republicans, no Democrats, no team from Washington, no team with a star on the side of their head. We don't even talk about alpha and beta storms around here. And if you believe all of that, I have a bridge to sell you in Brooklyn. Captain and Company in the morning, join me 9 to noon. Weekday mornings on OldSchool101.com because class is always in session around here. Virus or no virus. The theme from Mission Impossible from CBS, uh, September of 1966 to March 1973, revived for two seasons on ABC in 1988, and also, also the inspiration for the Tom Cruise series of movies beginning in 1996. Mission Impossible, It follows the exploits of the Impossible Missions Force, the IMF, a small team of secret agents. They're used for covert missions against dictators, evil organizations, and crime lords. And uh, very interestingly enough, the original leader of the IMF is Dan Briggs. You know, most people remember Peter Graves in the lead role of Mission Impossible, but he did not have that role in season one. Dan Briggs was the head of the IMF and played by Stephen Hill. Yes, that's Stephen Hill who played the grouchy district attorney on Law and Order. So, 
After season one, he was replaced by Peter Graves, who played Jim Phelps. Of course, the beginning of the show would be either Stephen Hill or Peter Graves getting the mission via a tape recording of some sort that would self-destruct in five seconds. Also part of the great cast, Greg Morris was uh, Barney Collier, Peter Lupus was uh, Willie Armitage, and he, of course, was a uh, bodybuilder. Martin Landau played Roland Hand. Leonard E. Moy was in seasons four and five as Paris. Barbara Bain as Cinnamon Carter in the first three seasons. Leslie Ann Warren would... uh, be one of her replacements. Sam Elliott was on that show as a cast member. Linda Day George. Uh, quite a who's who there of uh, people that were part of the Mission Impossible TV series that ran in the late 1960s. And of course, when I look at shows from the 60s, and this one falls in that category with the way they did certain filmings and jump cuts and things like that, you look at those and go, yeah, the drug use pre- and post-production and a lot in between (laughs) looked a little prevalent based on how some of those things were were put together. But uh, anyway, Mission Impossible, our TV theme for this week. Once again, thanks to Jamie Say of WKMG News 6 for joining us, and be sure to catch her in-depth sit-down interview with UCF head football coach Gus Malzahn That'll be on Saturday night after the 11 o'clock news on After the Whistle. And with that, we are done here. Thanks for listening to Jeff Allen Sports Talk. Follow Jeff on Twitter at Jeff Allen underscore 88, on Facebook at Jeff Allen 88, and the website JeffAllenSportsTalk.com. And you can reach out to the show anytime by email, JeffAllenSportsTalk at gmail.com. Jeff Allen Sports Talk is brought to you exclusively by Kramer's Salve for Dogs. Does your dog itch, suffer from debilitating skin allergies, or trouble hot spots? We have the solution using the healing power of neem. Kramer's Salve is a safe and natural approach to help your best friend live an itch-free life. Go to KramerSalve.net to order today with new low pricing. That's K-R-A-M-E-R-S-A-L-V-E dot net.